so my wife, my lovely wife, uh, Kara, and I have been married for almost 25 years. And a lot has happened over that almost quarter century, frankly. A lot has gone by. There's been seasons of great joy and seasons of great pain. Seasons we didn't want to end and seasons that we felt would never end. After we'd been married for just a couple of years, we decided that it was time to have kids because we thought that's how it worked. Like, you just decide you're ready for kids and then you just have them. And we, uh, we had a, a month-long vacation planned, a trip to Europe. And we thought, what better place to start a family than in Europe? Because we could have European kids, which would be super cool. But the trip came and went, and we didn't get pregnant. But that was okay. No worries. We'll just keep trying. And, and weeks went by, and weeks turned into months. And months turned into years, and still we couldn't get pregnant. It, it was hard for both of us, but for Kara, I think she felt it particularly hardly. She really suffered. Uh, she wanted so desperately to be a mom, and it just wasn't happening. We prayed, and we cried, and we tried to understand why God wasn't giving us this thing that we both wanted so desperately. We couldn't imagine what it would be like what, if we couldn't have kids. We, we couldn't imagine feeling like our family was complete if we couldn't have kids. And in the midst of that season, God was silent. God felt distant. I remember laying in our bed late at night, just staring up at the ceiling and just crying out to God and wondering if my words ever made it past the ceiling. If God was there and if he even cared in those moments. I also remember during that season going to a church service with Kara. And I think we were in, I think the preacher was talking about the prayer of Jabez. Does anyone remember that book? And he gave us this exercise where everybody in the room got a little canvas and crayons. And we were supposed to write out or draw a picture of the thing that our heart most desired. And there was a time where we could silently hold those canvases up to God. To show God what our heart most desired. And this is what my wife drew. It's, it's obviously just a quick and a crude drawing. But I specifically remember Kara sitting there and crying silently. And holding that image up to God, saying that what she wanted most in the world was to be able to get pregnant and then to have that pregnancy result in a healthy baby. That canvas sits on her dressing mirror every day, still to this day. And then a few months later, God answered our prayers, we thought. We found out that we were pregnant and all the pain just seemed to go away. It was going to be all right. All the tension, all the stress. We rejoiced with my family and with our friends. God had answered our prayers. But then just a few months later, I remember we realized that something was wrong. We went to the hospital and they confirmed that, that the pregnancy had, had terminated. And we were grief stricken. I called my parents and my sisters and we all grieved together. In my mind, I, I think this was a Saturday because I remember that I didn't sleep at all that night. And the next morning, I had to get up and get in front of church and lead worship. And it just so happened that one of the songs we had to sing that morning that we had planned weeks in advance was the song, Blessed Be Your Name by Matt Redman. The bridge goes. Sorry. The bridge goes, you give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, God, blessed 
be your name. I have led worship literally hundreds of times in my life. And I don't remember most of them. But that morning I will never forget as I stood in front of this congregation and just wept my way through that song. It was so incredibly difficult. And then it got worse. We received a call from my sister who was crying on the phone. And through her tears, she told us that they too were pregnant. They hadn't wanted to tell us because they knew the hard season that we had gone through. But now they had to tell us. And unbelievably, and I know this sounds like a fact that his pastor makes up for a sermon. But unbelievably, their due date was the exact same date that our date had been. I mean, what are the odds? And it started a whole new level of grief. I mean, we were the oldest. We were the first ones to get married. We were supposed to have the first grandchild. That wasn't this. That was how it was supposed to work. And so it was just so hard. And it was hard for both of us. But again, I feel like my wife felt it so much more profoundly than I did. Grief sort of took over and began very quickly to turn to anger and resentment and bitterness. Kara, for that season, couldn't even be with my sister. She couldn't be with my family. It was just too hard, which was so hard because my family's really, really close. And suddenly we couldn't be with them as we grieved and as they grieved and as they celebrated and prepared for this grandchild that they were going to have, the grandchild that was supposed to be ours. Baby showers happened and we didn't go. Birthdays and holidays happened and we couldn't be there. It was simply too hard. And I remember feeling I had lost so much. I mean, on top of losing this pregnancy, I felt like I'd lost my wife. She had so changed. I felt like I'd lost my family, this family that I was so close to. And I remember just feeling lost and feeling like I couldn't imagine that things would ever go back to the way they were. Then... When my sister was nine months pregnant, we got a call that she had collapsed while teaching at the school where she was working. She was rushed to the hospital, and they determined that she had viral encephalitis. And because she was nine months pregnant, there was absolutely nothing they could do medically. The the medication that they could give her would have been toxic to this unborn child. And so they put her in a medically induced coma and said, really, that's all we can do, that and pray. And so we did. We as a family took shifts sitting by her bedside and praying that God would protect her, that God would protect this unborn child inside of her. All of us took shifts, except Kara. It was just too hard. But then something changed. I remember Kara coming to me and saying that she wanted to take a shift at the prayer seat. And I was overjoyed, and I was scared, and I didn't know what would happen, but we went. We went to the hospital together, and I watched my wife sit silently by my sister's bedside, grieving our loss, grieving this sickness, praying for my sister and crying out to God. There was so much emotion, so many questions. Why? Why this, God? Well, eventually, the sickness passed. And my sister gave birth to a daughter, and they named her Annika, which means grace or favor. There was no way they could have known that we too had chosen the name Annika for our child if she was a girl. 
It was just one more reminder that we weren't the first. One more reminder that this isn't the way it was supposed to be. And so we didn't go to the hospital to meet her. Not at first. It was just too hard. Well, eventually we too got pregnant. Eventually we too had a healthy baby. And we named him Ian. Which means gift from God. Well, that was almost 15 years ago now. Uh, Ian's six foot two. Many of you probably recognize him. And we just have a great relationship now with, with my sister and her husband. A lot of that that was lost has been restored. We actually just spent a week with my family on vacation celebrating my, fifth, my parents' 50th anniversary. And this is a picture of Ian and his cousin, Annika, who are actually very close now. We're in a different season now. But then, when we were in the middle of that, it seemed like that would never And it was so hard. And in the midst of it, what was hardest is that God seemed mostly silent. There were no quick fixes. There were no easy answers in the moment. In the midst of it, we had to wrestle through, through so many questions for God. Why had any of this happened? Why would God, a good God, allow us to experience so much hurt and pain and loss? Why would a good God allow my sister, who had dedicated her life to Christ experience that sort of pain and loss. Why? I'm sure there are many of us in the room who've gone through seasons like this. I mean, maybe for you it wasn't a fertility issue. Maybe it was waiting for healing that didn't come. Maybe it was waiting for a job that never came. Maybe it was waiting for a relationship with a parent or a sibling or a friend and you're still waiting. Maybe it's grieving over a child who's walked away from God and you've cried out to God saying, draw them back into the fold. And you haven't seen that happen. And maybe God seems silent in the midst of it. Maybe you lie awake at night and wonder if God is even listening, if God is even there. You're not alone. This room is full of people with different stories and different seasons of life. People who can speak of the faithfulness of God even when we aren't experiencing that in this current season of our lives. And scripture is full of stories like that. Stories that help us understand these seasons of feeling like we're out in the wilderness. Stories that help us understand who God is. And so many of the stories from Genesis that we've been looking at, stories like Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham and and Joseph, all of these stories have this common theme of longing, of desiring, and of having to wait on the Lord. Trying to figure out where God is in the midst of their real, everyday lives. And while most of us probably grew up being told that these stories were primarily about these characters, these flannel graph heroes, honestly... Mostly it's not. The primary object of these stories, the primary actor and character in these stories, the primary person we're supposed to understand more is God, is Yahweh, so that we can find hope and experience God, who he is and how he interacts with his creation. So today we're going to look at one of those stories again, the story of Abram. And get another look, not just at Abram, but more importantly, at who God is and how he wants us to understand him from these stories. This book of Genesis, it lays the foundation for how God wants us to understand who he is and how he interacts in this world. And there are things that if we can understand these, it will make so much more sense than everything else the Bible has to say. The first one is this. 
God's desire is to bless us. And I know there's probably some of you who think that that's maybe health and wealth or that's prosperity gospel. But the truth is, if you look at Scripture, the way that Genesis presents God, it says at the creation, he created and he said, it is good. It was bounty. He created humankind and he said, it is very good. It was a picture of beauty and, 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 and bounty. A picture that was marred by sin. And as we're introduced to Abram, it's, it's a picture of a young man who God, not a young man, a man who had nothing, who, who was childless, who had no hope and no future. And God says these words to him in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives and your family, father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram departed as the Lord had instructed, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. God wants us to understand through this story, that he's a God who wants to bless not just Abram, but all the family of earth throughout all of history. Over the next several chapters, it's going to be very apparent that this promise to Abram extends to his generation, or to the next generation, and to the next generation, and to all of creation. God's desire to restore and to bless. When we read all of these stories, uh, the stories in Genesis, and the stories throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, and even the stories of our own lives, We need to see it through that lens that God is good, that God is for us, that his desire is for good for us, even when we don't see the evidence around us in the season of waiting, the season of pain. But there's a counterpoint to that that we must also understand, that Genesis also presents as foundational to understanding who God is. Did you notice from that passage, how old it said Abram was when he received this promise. Anybody? 75 years old, right? He's now way too old to have kids. I mean, this sounds absurd to us, and it did to him. He's lived his entire adult life being reminded that he had no hope and no future, but God promises the absurd. And then, in every significant milestone in Abram's journey, we are given his age. We're reminded of the progression of his age. I think certainly that happens, at least in part, so that we know just how profound this miracle is, that they would have a baby. But I think there's also a message that we are supposed to get, an illustration that we have been given in this. And is this, God's promises are always true, but almost never on our timeline. We live in an on-demand world, in a culture that has never been more centered on immediate gratification. We want what we want, and we want it now, right? I mean, how angry were you when Amazon got rid of two-day free shipping, (laughs) right? Like, three days is too long to wait. We want what we want, and we want it now. We have on-demand television. Netflix has now made it possible that we can watch an entire season of a show in one viewing the day that it comes out. And I know many people did that this week with Stranger Things, right? We live in a culture that is on demand and we believe that we want on demand happiness. And yet God never presents that 
I think this is given to us to illustrate the fact that, that, that God doesn't work that way. That God is not an on-demand God. His promises to us are good and his promises to us are true, but the timeline is his. God gets to be God and we don't. And we struggle with that. It's foundational. We, we want instant happiness. And as someone reminded me after the first service, what Scripture more often presents is that as followers of Christ, we get to walk with joy and sorrow hand in hand. And that is the picture we get in Scripture. Not this American idea of instant happiness. So if this is what Scripture is trying to present to us in this story, what did that look like for God's timeline for Abram? So that was chapter 12, five chapters later, chapter 17, five chapters and a few missteps on Abram's part. Okay, a lot of missteps on Abram's part. We see this opening up in chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Serve me faithfully and live a blameless life. I will make a covenant with you by which I will guarantee to give you countless descendants. Abraham is now 99 years old. It has been 24 years since Abram first encountered God. First heard the promise that God was going to bless him and give him a multitude of descendants. God had already made a covenant, a graphic covenant that we covered in week one of this series. God had then reiterated that promise throughout the chapters between this. God had reiterated that covenant multiple times to Abraham. It's been 24 years. I think at this point, I would have said to God, like, enough with the promises. Enough with telling me what you're going to do. Do it already. And we're covenants. But that's not how Abram responds. But this Abram fell face down on the ground. And then God said to him, this is my covenant with you. I will make you the father of multitude, well, multitude of nations. What's more, I'm changing your name. It will no longer be Abram. Instead, you will be called Abraham. For you will be the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants will become many nations and kings will be among them. Let's pause there for just a second. Names throughout scripture, but particularly in the Old Testament, were very significant. Abram meant exalted father. And yet Abram had no children. This would have been salt in his wound for for his entire adult life, reminding him each time his wife spoke his name that he had failed to live up to the name that he'd been given. He was a father. He'd had a father at 86 by Hagar. But that had brought strife and division and enmity between he and Sarah. That had brought pain and chaos, as we learned last week. He hadn't done it God's way, and he had paid a price. But God meets him there, in that place of shame and regret and loss and disappointment. And he says, I am going to give you a new name, Abraham, which the Hebrew word sounds like the word for father of many. I think in this, it's like God saying to Abraham, yes, this wasn't my plan for you. This wasn't my best for you. You took matters into your own hands and chaos prevailed. But I could still work with this. I still desire to bless you and to use you to be a blessing. I can still accomplish what I want to accomplish through you. And I can give you a new, even greater name. I will call you the father of many. This is how the author of Genesis chooses to reveal who God is. This is how God says, I want to be known by you. 
This is a God who says, I want to meet you in your pain, your waiting, your disappointment. This is a God who sees us, as we learned last week, who saw Hagar in the wilderness, in her moments of pain and isolation. He is a God who sees us and takes our sadness, our longings, even our failures, and can make beautiful things out of them. I think Scripture is presenting to us that God, in the midst of these things, isn't distant. That's a place to write that in your notes. No matter how much we feel it in these moments of isolation and pain, God is the God who sees. And Scripture chooses to tell the story that God, throughout Abraham's story, throughout all of these seasons, God was active, God was working, God was visiting, God was present. And then in the next chapter, God again appears to Abram and promises that within the year, Sarah would have a child. Sarah overhears the conversation and laughs, which at this point I think we can understand, right? She's 90 years old. For 24 years, she's heard her husband yammering on about this promise. Of course she laughs. Verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Why did she say, can an old woman like me have a baby? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And then the story has a happy ending, right? For those of us who know the story. Chapter 21 opens this way. The Lord kept his word and did for Sarah exactly what he had promised. She became pregnant and she gave birth to a son for Abraham in his old age. This happened at just the time God had said it would. And Abram named him Isaac. Eight days later, after Isaac was born, Abram circumcised him as God had commanded. Abram was 100 years old when Isaac was born. 100 years old, 25 years Abram had had to wait, 25 difficult years of waiting and wanting and hoping and fearing, 25 years of questioning himself, questioning God, questioning why. And now that season of waiting, that season of longing is over. Now the promise is finally fulfilled. The child of promise has finally been born. The scoffers have been proven wrong. The fears and the worries have all been proven unwarranted. God has done exactly what he said he would do exactly when he said he would do it. It's a happy ending. And we want the story to stop there, right? I mean, it's a nice, neat conclusion. They have their baby. God has proved his faithfulness. The heir is provided so Abraham can now rest easy knowing that his future is secured and God can bless the future generations. Why don't we just stop there? But that's not how the end of the story goes, is it? Perhaps the hardest part comes next. And as absurd and as challenging and as difficult as the story has been up until this point, now it gets worse. Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. I think to our modern ears, this sounds so graphic. This sounds so barbaric. This sounds so strange to us. It it makes us question the character of God. Why would God possibly ask Abraham to do this? Why would God direct Abraham to perform a child sacrifice? It sounds so strange to our ears. 
But we have to remember that to Abraham, as an ancient Near Eastern man, this wouldn't have sounded nearly as strange. In fact, child sacrifice was fairly common. Uh, oftentimes, uh, parents would take their firstborn children and they were sacrificed to the god of fertility, El, the highest god of the region, in order to ensure future fertility for their family. So here God is using, as he had previously done with Abram, a common pagan practice that Abraham would have recognized, he would have understood. And again, a God is using this ancient brutal law of the land to send a message to Abram of who he was and sending that same message to us. But it's still weird, right? I mean, God in the previous chapter had specifically named Isaac as the heir through whom he would make Abraham a blessing to future generations, through whom he would make Abram a great, Abraham a great nation. And now God is calling him to do the absurd. But just as before, when God asked Abram to do absurd things, to leave the land of his fathers, Abram says yes. In these 25 years of waiting, in these 25 years of watching, in these 25 years of interacting with God, Abraham has seen God do the unimaginable. Starting in verse 3. The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place that God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. It says, Abraham, Abraham got up early and packed. He even brought firewood and sets out on this unknown land that God would show him, an unknown mountain. It sounds familiar to the earlier part of the story, right? And it says that the trip took three days. Imagine what those three days would have been like for Abraham, for Isaac. The questions that have, must have run through Abraham's head. What is God doing? Why would he ask me to kill the child of the promise? Can I actually even go through with this? Imagine spending three days walking silently through the land, looking, hoping for an answer, contemplating what lay ahead and avoiding any questions about where they were going. Imagine three nights of looking up at the same stars that God had used, that God had shown to a much younger Abram as an illustration of how many descendants Abram would one day have. And now Abraham is being called upon to end that family line, to kill the hope. Abram's legacy, his future, God's promise, everything rode on this young boy. Verse 5. Stay here with the donkey, Abram told his servants. The boy and I will travel a little further. We'll worship there and then we'll come right back. Notice that Abram says, Abraham says, we will worship there and then we will come back. I don't want to make too much of that, but it, it, it would seem to indicate that Abraham has a sense that there's something else at play here. God, the God who has been faithful, will somehow make a way. It's not that he understands, because clearly he doesn't, but he believes that both he and Isaac will be coming back to them. Verse 6, so Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulder, shoulders while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Abraham... Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son. Abraham replied, we have the fire and the wood, but where's the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham answered, 
And they both walked on together. When they had arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. The parallels of this story to the story of Jesus, of the execution of Jesus, are remarkable. A beloved son being made to carry the wood that would be his death on his very back. The innocence and perhaps even confusion and concern of Isaac's young voice as he asks, Father, where's the sheep? I don't understand. That foreshadows the words of Jesus in the garden, saying, Father, take this cup from me. Let this cup pass. But not my will, but yours be done. The innocent child, the son, allowing himself to be bound and laid on the altar. The fear and confusion and dread filling both the father and the son in this moment. But not only fear, somehow, miraculously, somehow also trust. Trust in the love of a father. Trust that somehow something bigger is at play. Trust that the same God who had miraculously provided this boy would also miraculously provide the substitute. Verse 10. And Abram picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Once again, God's voice calls out to Abraham. And once again, Abraham replies, yes, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Don't hurt him in any way. For now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. You've not withheld from me your son, even your son. You've not withheld from me even your hope, your future, your heir. You have not withheld from me even the most precious gift I've given you, a gift that you waited 25 years to receive. You have not withheld from me even the only proof you have that I am good. Even that you have not withheld from me. The verse that's used here in in the Greek Old Testament for withheld is the same word that Paul uses later in Romans 8 to describe the loving action of God when he says this. Since he did not, speaking of God, since he did not spare or withhold even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? I think in this moment, the picture that we're supposed to understand is that in that moment, Abraham remembered those earliest words that he heard from God. He he remembered God's faithfulness. He remembered God's promise. These words that Abraham is remembering and that Paul later reiterates to us. God is for us. God loves us. God wants to bless us and through us bless the world. Remember that even when it doesn't make sense, even when the evidence seems to point to calamity, God is saying to Abraham and God is saying to us, trust me, I have good plans for you. Then Abraham looked up and he saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham named the place Yahweh Yireh, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On 
the mountain of the Lord. It will be provided. It was when Abraham was willing to embrace the absurdity. To embrace God's plan that made no sense to him. To willingly take the thing that was most precious to him and lay it, his hope, his future, and lay it before God and say, even this I give to you. That God said, now you get it. Was it wrong that Abraham wanted a son, and heir to carry on his family line? Was it wrong that Kara and I wanted to have a family? And that we grieved to watch the family and friends around us doing that when we couldn't? Is it wrong for you to want that career or to want that marriage or that relationship or to see your child reconciled to God? Whatever your heart most desires. Is that wrong? No. Those are God-given natural desires that God sees and God cares about. We know that from the story last week. God wants you to be blessed. But I think part of what this story illustrates is that what God wants even more is for us to trust him in the midst of our longings and our sadness and our disappointment, in the midst of our wilderness, in the midst of our ambitions. It's only when we are willing to lay down all of those things, those good God-given things, and sacrifice them before God that we can really find life, that we can really experience God, that we can know God by faith. And in doing that, actually find real meaning in the things of this world, in our families and in our friends and in our careers. That is how God designed life to be. This is a foreshadowing of the words of Jesus in Matthew 10 when he says, If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. I think that is one of the truths, one of the core truths that Genesis presents and that you will then see played out through the rest of the book and the rest of the Old Testament and the rest of Scripture. God wants all in faith. A faith that says, I will not trust in the good gifts that God has given me. I will trust in the good God that he is. And in him alone. We're going to observe communion together in just a few minutes. As a way of entering into this time, I, I would invite you to reflect, to examine yourself, to ask the Holy Spirit to examine you. I still so vividly remember that service where the pastor gave us those canvases and crayons and asked us to draw our deepest desire. What if we did that today? What would you draw what is your greatest longing? What is your greatest passion? What is your greatest ambition, your greatest regret? If there's one thing that you believe you could change in your life, and in changing it, you would somehow know completeness, know fulfillment, what would that be? You don't have to draw it, but I would invite you to look for it. I would invite you to face it. I would invite you to think about it. And as we prepare ourselves now for communion, I invite you to have sort of a, a Mariah moment, a, a mountaintop moment with God. To hold up that one thing as Kara did. To hold it up before God. Hold up that one thing, your child of promise, even if it's a gift from God. Even if it represents your hope and your future. Hold it up for God. Hold it up to God in whatever way you want and say to God, even this I will not withhold from you.